And relationship selling is, is never going to die. And people buy the why, they don't always buy the what. Hey, my name is Felix Tia, and I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn how to collect early feedback from your initial beta customers, the value of setting your price point higher than what is actually worth, and what kind of retargeting photos work best for their ads. Today, I'm joined by Austin Maxwell and Kyle Self from Kanga. Kanga invented and patented the world's first iceless cooler designed to fit around an entire case of 12-ounce beverages and was started in 2017 and based out of Clemson, South Carolina. Welcome, guys. Hey, thanks for having us. Thanks, Felix. Looking forward to it, man. Awesome. So this all started as part of a class project. So tell us more about this class project. What was it about? Yeah, man. So we were all in an entrepreneurship class in the spring of 2017 at Clemson University down in South Carolina. And our class was tasked with a project to develop a solution to a problem that we faced on a regular basis. And being down in the South, being a, uh, a large ACC football school, something that we regularly faced when we were tailgating was warm beer. And the reason we were walking around with warm beer is because you really only have two options on game day when you've got you know multiple miles to walk from tailgate to tailgate or to the bars or to the stadium, wherever you're going. So what we would do is we would go to a convenience store, grab a cold 12-pack of beer, and just walk around with it, something that we like to call a naked case. Public Brutity. Public Brutity is, is a campaign that we started. And, nice. Uh, so we'd walk around with that case of beer, and the handle would get soggy and rip on us, and the beers would get warm within an hour or two. But the alternative was for us to bring our three, $400 massive Yeti coolers, which we all have and we all love, but it wasn't the most practical option for walking around four, five, six, seven hours tailgating on game day. So uh, what we actually thought about and, and invented was the world's first koozie for an entire case of beer or soda. So we took that same concept that you'll see on any other can insulator. It's just a high-quality neoprene that wraps around the uh, can itself. And the idea is to just keep the beverage cold for the length that you're going to be consuming it. So we thought, why isn't there something that exists that will keep the entire case of beer cold for the entire length that you're going to be consuming that case of beer? And that's kind of how the idea was founded. And uh, the class project was a great way to kind of put things together. Although we did end up with a B on the project, it's not something that we uh, were too bitter about. Yeah, B for beer. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that this is like the epitome of a problem that you would face at a at a big school, and you guys take advantage of recognizing that problem. So this was this was a class project, and I'm assuming that there wasn't a requirement to actually turn this into a business. So what made you guys decide to pursue this even further outside of the classroom? Yeah, man. So we we didn't really know, one, if it was going to work or not, and, and two, if there was really anything with likes here. But everyone who was part of the group at that point was really passionate about entrepreneurship and kind of creating something out of nothing and doing something a little bit bigger than just the class project. And, you know, from that point, we ended up um, taking a roll of scuba foam to a local seamstress and a 12 pack of beer. And we asked the seamstress if she was able to wrap something around uh, the, pro you know, the, the case of beer and kind of create a sleeve. And we said, you know, if you're able to develop this for us, this prototype, we'll let you keep the 12-pack of beer. And she said, absolutely. And that's kind of how the first prototype was made. And, um, you know, the, the team just had that, that mentality that, hey, if this works, if this is actually able to keep the beverages cold, then why would we not want to pursue this? Why would we not want to take a risk? There's really no better time than to pursue a company than when you're in college. You have, honestly, the most amount of time, and a lot of people don't realize that, but uh, it, it's the best time for you to pursue a company, and you have so many resources with the university that no one really thinks about. And uh, that's just where everyone's mentality was at and, and led us to kind of move forward onto a, a Kickstarter campaign and grow from there. Got it. So you validate this was a problem, certainly for you and your team. You prototyped out a solution. Were there any other steps that you took to determine if there were other people that would pay for a product like this that had, you know, as like a desperate need for a solution like yours? 
Sure. Yeah. I mean, the most important thing when you start a company, especially a consumer good, is you got to test the market, right? So we were able to find a local manufacturer in Greenville, South Carolina, about 45 minutes up the road. And we made 150, you know, quote unquote prototypes. And we just leaned on our local network and people in the area. Uh, we sold, you know, all 150 in about three weeks, which was a good success. But we wanted to get their feedback before we actually moved on to the next side. So um, we learned a lot from that. Our original product was very thin and that was a, a big red flag for us. And the original product didn't even have a handle. So the same issue that we were running into when we were just walking around with the naked cases and the handle breaking was happening even after we made our first prototype. So testing the market was huge. Gotcha. So you mentioned that you've made 150 of these prototypes in the very first versions. Where did you guys end up selling it? We tapped in the local community. We uh, reached out to some uh, local manufacturers as well as uh, doing events. So uh, Austin had a great connect um, to a local social account for, uh, what was it? Yeah, we, yeah, we did some events locally and we were able to get deplete those 150 units pretty um, quickly, just kind of face-to-face handshake. We were um, starting to get a website built at that time, but it was really just leaning on the, the local community. And then the first time that we really engaged some e-commerce opportunity is when we launched a Kickstarter campaign. Cause you got to think about it when there's four or five college students starting a company, we really had no access to capital whatsoever. So to initiate a large scale production run and take that risk of holding on to inventory was just not something that was really in our scope. So we actually found out that, uh, you know, Kickstarter was going to be a really easy way for us to have that low risk opportunity and, and collect the cash up front before we went into the production side of things. And, you know, that's really what helped us uh, get get the company off the ground and launch a real first production run. So that first 150 were all done by seamstresses that you guys had met? Yeah, the seamstress made the prototype. And then we found a local manufacturer who makes like scarves and um, stuff like that in, in the Greenville area. And they were able to ramp it up a little bit for us, but we knew that that wasn't going to be the solution after the feedback we got. And so we were able to, um, actually win a pitch SmackDown competition, which is like a kind of a mini shark tank style at that our university host. And, uh, we got first place and about $8,000 and that helped us file for patents at an early stage. And what that really led us to was our first kind of investor slash mentor, who had a lot of experience in sourcing products, especially consumer goods overseas. And that's what led us to a connection with a factory in China. And uh, that's who we engaged when we were planning out our Kickstarter campaign. So it was about three different um, factories, you know, prototype then a slightly larger company to make the 150 units. And then we were able to source a really quality manufacturer overseas in order to ramp up our first production run. So in that first 150 that you sold, you mentioned that some of the most important things you got out of it was the feedback early on. What kind of feedback were you getting? Like, What kind of questions were you asking to pull out the feedback that you needed to know how to improve the product? Yeah. So the most important thing is just to let people use it in whatever environment that they think it's going to be best fit for them. Right. So like we came up with the idea, honestly, to solve our tailgating problems. But that didn't necessarily mean that that was the only problem that it was going to solve. So we just got these into the customer's hands and we were able to send out forms after and just ask them, you know, 100 questions. Where did you use this? How long did it work for you? What type of beverage did you put inside? What would you improve about the product? What did you actually like about the product? You know, did you think the price point was fair? Just kind of unload everything that you possibly could. And for the people that took the time to sit down and actually criticize us. Those were the feedback. That was the feedback that was the most important for us. Of course, you're going to have the friends who are just going to say, man, this is perfect the way it is, but but that's not helpful. It was really the people who broke it down and, and kind of ripped mm-hmm. us apart that uh, helped out the most. Especially the people who didn't like it. So I want to break this down tactically a bit because I think there's super important steps that you guys took that I think anyone can take when they are unsure if their product is proven or not. So you sold 150 at first, were you collecting emails or something at the time you're selling it so that you can follow up with them later? And how soon after they got the product in their hands were you following up with them? Yeah, email is how we got in touch with everyone. And then we set out a Google form. It was just the easiest way for us to get the information all consolidated into one place. So we let them run, I'd say, about two to three weeks. I mean, we were very um, considerate about the time and very intentional with 
how quickly we wanted to move to the next phase. But what we were very fortunate was how quickly we were able to deplete the 150 units. I mean, obviously, it was a lot of friends and family and people in our local networks, but uh, it was it was awesome how quickly we were able to get them to use it out in the market. It, this was springtime, so it was not necessarily tailgate season, which was good feedback for us because people were out using it on the boats. They were taking it to the pool that they were get, taking it on the golf course. So we had a wide variety of age ranges that bought from us and a wide variety of uh, basically results that people had with it. And I, I'd recommend that to any entrepreneur who's looking to get into consumer good or really start any company is test at a micro level. And I know 150 people might seem like a lot, but it, it's really not that tough to get your product, whether you're giving it away for free or whether you're just trying to sell it. We had to sell it at the time because we really didn't have any money. But if you're able to get in, into some influential people of all different age ranges and, and age demographics, uh, it can be very, very powerful, and you need to collect as much information from them as possible. Yeah, so speaking of the sample size of 150 people, now that the business is much bigger, now you have much, 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 or many, many more customers, has the feedback that the initial 150 given you, has that changed as you scale up, or has the feedback stayed pretty much the same from that initial 150? Um, yeah, no, it's changed a lot. So since getting that feedback, we've um, improved the product drastically. Uh, when we started, it was essentially, you know, we say it's a koozie for a case, and it was exactly that when we started. Um, it was just a, you know, thin neoprene liner that you throw on top of a case. Um, since that, we bulked up the insulation, uh, added a handle, and, uh, you know, just tried to make it more of a premium product, uh, you know, less, you know, knickknacky and more something that, you know, when you get it, you want to hold on to and, uh, you know, keep close to heart. And that's actually interesting because what we figured out is in doing that was ultimately where we thought people were going to use it isn't necessarily where they are using it. Um, you know, we may have done too good of a job at, you know, making it something that people want to hold on to. So, uh, you know, tailgating isn't necessarily the, the, oh, excuse me, isn't necessarily the best place to be when you're running around, you know, um, drinking all day you don't want to mm. carry something out with you that you're scared to lose um so we found that you know people love using it around the house um great for dinner parties like barbecues it's uh we found a need in the casual use cooler being that you know ultimately it saves your trip to the store it keeps you um you know easy to use and it's just you know you grab it from the Fridge, slide it in, and you need it, and you got cold drinks. So I think that's super important about how you guys recognize, how you saw that people weren't using it the way that you thought they would or weren't using it where you thought they would. Yeah, the original, I guess the original use case where we had thought, we realized it was much broader than it actually was, right? It wasn't just exactly. a tailgate product. It was perfect for multiple occasions. And with the new round of feedback and because that's we're really big on that. We're always innovating. We're on iteration number four of the cooler right now, already working on iteration five and six. And obviously, you don't want to get too caught up in always improving, but it's important to keep that on the horizon. And we're really satisfied with the current version of the product, but there is always room for more improvement. So that's why we're continuously collecting more and more feedback. And what the consumers are telling us now is much different than what they were telling us a year and a half ago. Uh, now they're just pointing out small details that can make very large improvements versus way back then we had, you know, maybe some huge pointers that were going to make small improvements. And so we're, we're constantly trying to collect feedback and data. And uh, we send out email blasts all the time and we'll incentivize people with free koozies or free gifts in order to have them fill out a short survey and let us know what their experience was with the product. Because, you know, as, as a young company, we're still learning who exactly our customer is. We have a really good idea of who we think it is. And we've had success kind of targeting that person. But then you'll have someone come in the next day and purchase eight of these. And it was not, you know, our core demographic or someone you would have never expected. So uh, always be willing to learn. Right. So what was the best way to get people to be super responsive? I guess nowadays it's to offer these freebies. But what were some ways to that you started to get feedback once you had a little bit of a customer base? Uh, yeah, 100%. We, you know, ultimately we try to not discount our product. So we try to find creative solutions to offers. Um, 
So, you know, whether it's a free koozie, free shipping, anything of that nature, we'll offer it to them. Um, we also kind of use that feedback loop as an incentive to, um, you know, play out the next purchase. So one thing that we started doing, which we've seen pretty good success with, is um, offering a gift card for if you complete a survey. So when someone goes on and completes the survey, we'll give them a $5 gift card that they can then apply to their next purchase. Um, so it's, you know, half getting that feedback, but also, you know, retaining that customer on the back end. Right. I like that. Do you find that the unsolicited feedback that you get, maybe from a customer email that they reached out to you unsolicited, is different than the feedback that you would get through these kind of more like solicited approaches where you are offering them some kind of free gift or some kind of discount or some kind of promotion to get them to provide that feedback? Um, yeah, 100%. Uh, so one thing that we've noticed is it is it's more, um, you know, I'd say that the feedback that we get from the email list, the surveys is more, uh, you know, past or reactive saying, you know, what's good, good about the product? What do you like? So on and so forth. But then people reaching out to us is, you know, just great ideas. That's where we get a lot mm -hmm. of our ideas from, you know, ultimately from, you know, in the Kickstarter, we, uh, Actually, one of the like biggest things that happened out of that was uh, Anheuser-Busch reached out to us because they saw the potential for the custom aspect of it, which we had never thought, you know, that had never even crossed our minds leading up to that. But, um, you know, one of their, who was it um, that reached out from Anheuser-Busch? Do you remember? Bud Light. Uh, yeah, so one of the buyers from Bud Light reached out and was like, Hey, have you ever thought of doing B2B custom? And then we constantly have people asking for, you know, Hey, do you have, you know, this school or this, you know, professional sports team? And then that was, Hey, you know, what about a licensing route? So on and so forth. Um, so I'd say it's, you know, very different just from the types of feedback we're trying to get, you know, when they're replying to a survey, you know, it's more internal stuff. What can we do better versus, when they reach out to us, it's more, hey, like, this is an opportunity for you guys that you can capture. Yeah, Felix, I'd say but both definitely have have merit and people's opinions are going to vary. And, you know, when we incentivize people to fill out a survey, because we recently launched a six pack and something that we did to allow early bird access to our six pack cooler was to have them fill out a survey. And we realized that a lot of the feedback from that specific survey was skewed very positively and we weren't sure if that was because the people just wanted to unlock that early bird special versus if someone's just going to, you know, randomly send us an email and be more honest and more, you know, critical. Mm -hmm. um, both both have merit to it. And it's just kind of how you want to analyze and absorb the information that you have in front of you. That makes sense. So it sounds like solicited feedback is often about the existing product or past customer experience and unsolicited feedback is more forward thinking and ideas and products and features that your most avid customers are looking for. So you mentioned that you asked a lot of questions when you put out these surveys. What would you say, you know, looking back on it, maybe more particularly early on, what kind of questions do you think gave you the most critical information that you were able to act on? Yeah, I think just asking people when they were going to use the product, what their experience was when they used it out in the open, depending on, uh, you know, was it brought to a barbecue? Were they on the golf course? Did they go to a pool party? Was it used for tailgating? And then asking uh, how the price point felt to them. Did they use it as a gift? We're, what we're really trying to determine from our surveys is uh, what is the use case and where is our customer base taking such a wide product. We do feel that after, you know, four iterations now that the level of quality of the product is there. So we don't ask as many questions about, hey, what do you think about the material? What do you think about the handle and the koozie pocket and stuff like that? It's more so where do you picture yourself using this? Where have you used it in the past? What was your experience with that? Um, you know, it's really important to give that kind of the scale. Mm -hmm. We like to do the zero to 10 scale a lot because you can really get a more specified answer. Um, you know, if someone has a seven experience versus a 10, that in our eyes is a significant difference. So knowing the people to answer honestly um, and, and just asking, you know, broad questions, you know, stuff that they can fill in themselves. Because some people give you two words and some people give you four sentences. The two words might be the most powerful thing you've ever read. Um, but, you know, it's just 
having that availability for them to answer it, it, whichever method they prefer. Yeah. And ultimately from that, you know, getting those use cases, you're able to, you know, learn a lot about your customer and ultimately figure out who that customer is, which is, you know, from an e-commerce standpoint, from more importantly, an advertising standpoint is huge because, you know, knowing your audience and figuring out where they are is, you know, one of the most important things that you can do just to, you know, grow your business. Right. I definitely want to talk about how knowing where they take your product, how they use it, the use cases, how that affects your messaging and marketing in one second. But before we go there, I want to talk about the price point, how important that is. I think that is something that a lot of people struggle with, like wondering, are they maximizing their profit on the product that they're selling? Or are they losing a lot of customers because they're selling it for too high of a price? Now, out of that initial 150 that you sold, what were their responses to the question about price point? Yeah, so we initially got the 12 and the 24 pack out at a 30 to $35 price point. The initial version of that product, we definitely were overpriced. We knew it was overpriced, but that was the price point that we wanted to get the brand to. And so we were comfortable getting it out, those first 150 units at that price. Collecting the feedback that we knew we were going to get, hey guys, this is overpriced, but if you did this, it would be worth that price point because we really want to sit in that sweet spot of $30 to $40. It's a very giftable price point. It's affordable for young people, even if you're still in college or if you're right out of college, um, even for adults. You know, it's, it's not the $400 coolers that you're seeing out in the market. We're trying to fit in that lower cost, but premium value prop to the consumer at the same time. And so when we tested the 150 units, yeah, we were right in that $35 range and we knew it was on the high end, but that was the price that we wanted to get to. So we kept collecting the feedback, uh, making improvements to the product. And now our product sits at that 30 to $40 price point comfortably. And we rarely have anyone push back on the actual price of the product, which, you know, is something that I think we're all pretty excited about. Yeah. Well, something that's been pretty, you know, unique with, with our situation is, uh, like I said, we're about four iterations through the product. So it was initial prototype with the local seamstress, a slightly better, but still not good version, uh, which we did with 150 units locally. And then we did the Kickstarter campaign. We went overseas, made some slight improvements to the product. That was the same version of the product that we took on to Shark Tank with us. And so after Shark Tank aired and we just were just submerged with traffic and and, and a lot of customers purchased. We had our biggest spike from an e-commerce perspective, the biggest brand awareness hit that our company has had, you know, uh, company to date. But that was still that medium version of the product. We still knew that it had room to improve. So at that point, we did have a lot of feedback from customers. They loved it. They really liked the direction that it was going. Um, but they even provided more feedback. And we collect a lot of feedback through Instagram, through Facebook Messenger, through all of our social media platforms, as well as on email. We have a form on our website, um, which will send it directly to everyone's email in the company. And we took that feedback. And that's when we made kind of iteration four, which is where we sit today, which is a much higher, much better version of the product that we even just had four months ago when we were on Shark Tank. And uh, it's just been a, you know, it's been a unique challenge educating people on the improvements and on the difference and kind of keeping our price point consistent. But that was something that definitely helped us out was that we didn't increase the price, even though we improved the product quality. So we brought more value to our customer without increasing the price. It makes sense. So now as you go through rounds of these surveys and asking some questions, did your questions change as your product evolves, as the business grows? Like, How do you decide what new questions to ask? Yeah. So the important thing when you're asking questions is you want to find out what, what's the information that we want to know the most at that given time? So for iteration one, we just wanted to know, hey, guys, does this product work? Do you guys see yourself paying the 30 to $40 for the product? And now the type of questions that we're going to be asking and that we are asking with this, this version of the product is where, where can we go from here, right? What else can be done to the product to improve it? Or what experience did you have with this that is now scalable for us that you could see other people using it? and the questions are, are definitely changing, but still to the core for us, we just want to know, did someone find value in this product and did they have a positive experience when they used it, if they used it correctly? That's another challenge that we run into a lot is some people think that it's either a lunchbox or just an insulated bag and they don't take the entire cardboard case and put it inside of the product. So understanding if a customer had a bad experience and we reach out to them, well, hey, how did you use it? Oh, well, we just threw 12, you know, loose cans into your product and it 
only stayed cold for two hours. Well, then we have to educate them that to have the best experience and the, the, the way the product was created was to insulate the entire case itself. And when they do that, they come back and they're like, oh my God, I didn't know that. That's amazing. It worked out for me. So just having those questions ready um, it has been the most important thing for us. Yeah, I think that's critical that you mentioned that you ask the questions that you need to know at that given time. Like what is actually the obstacle, the problem that's in front of you that's stopping you from moving forward? Yeah. I think a lot of times people are like, oh, this is an important opportunity for me to get all the information out of my customer and ask them a question that you might not even need an answer for for like 10 steps ahead. Yeah. But you're specifically focused on what is the problem in front of you guys as a company right now and what is the question that you need to ask to get past this question, get past this obstacle. So I think that's important that you are – so you know, you're you talking about earlier how that knowing where your customers are using your product, knowing the use cases, not only will it change the features, the improvements you make on a product, but also more importantly, especially in the e-commerce perspective, how to change the advertising, the messaging, and the marketing to reflect that information that you guys have gathered. So tell us about that. Like, How do you use information from the use cases that your customers are telling you about how they're using the actual product? How does that change the way you do your advertising and marketing? Yeah, 100%. So um, one big thing that we try to do is just figure out where our customers are in terms of the digital standpoint. So, you know, we, um, we've got a group of interns uh, that come in and like I just have them scour through social, figuring out, you know, finding uh, what is it, you know, customer reposts, you know, anyone who's done anything with our product used our hashtag. Um, you know, where are they posting pictures with it, as well as, you know, using our analytics to figure out, you know, what categories people fall into that are buying our products. Um, so one thing that we definitely use is um, Facebook's interest targeting for prospecting. Uh, and a lot of that is pulled from our affinity categories within Google Analytics. Um, so just kind of figuring out, you know, what group that customer falls into and then ultimately where they're at digitally. I got it. So you are qualitatively looking at it and quantitatively looking at it too, the data. So you're qualitatively looking at what your customers are doing with the product, where they're posting photos of them using it, but you're also looking at Google Analytics to see where your visitors are from, what kind of categories, what kind of affinities they have, and then collectively use that information for your Facebook prospecting at a very kind of high top of the funnel level. So the very first time anyone has ever been exposed to your brand, your target interest that you are seeing the use cases that people are telling you about that you're seeing in your data. 100%. And then, you know, a big thing that we try to do is, you know, cross-reference those two to group them into cohorts of, you know, kind of break it down into who is this person, who is this person, or who is this group, who is this group, um, to, you know, show them, to be able to show them, you know, relevant messaging and relevant media. Yeah, so let's speak about that. So now that you have the targeting for someone that's using it around the house, for example, which is different than your initial hypothesis that they were only going to be using it for tailgating, what do you change in the photo or the video and the actual copy that shows up in the Facebook ads? 100%. Uh, so yeah, we um, one thing we definitely do is just you know the actual activity of what we're showing. So ultimately, you have different age groups and we found that the majority of people that are using it around the house you know range within the 35 to 50 age range um so that group we're able to then you know kind of mature our copy and our uh, media to resonate with them um but then also using people within our demographic to show that just to kind of you know give them that uh nostalgic feel of hey like you know this is what I do. This is, you know, the, these are the people in their glory years kind of using the aspect of nostalgia as, as well as, you know, the relevant uh, use case to kind of, you know, target that person and ultimately try and get them to the site. Yeah, I feel like the, the audience and the content are definitely the two things that we interchange a lot of, right? Because you know, a six pack of high end craft beer, it's costing them $15 for that six pack, but some of our consumers are buying a 12 pack of white claws and might be female, male, 21 years old versus 45 years old. So the content that we put out there and we collect content on a weekly basis in all sorts of different settings, 
just so that we are, have a library of assets that when we do want to tailgate that 22-year-old female girl who's going to a party and bringing a 12-pack of White Claw, we can pinpoint that exact moment and make her feel when she sees the ad that she's understanding and picturing herself in that scenario. And when we want to target the 42-year-old male who's got a jersey on and they're watching football on a Sunday and they bought that expensive pack of craft beer, we have the content and the audiences built out to be able to pinpoint that exact person as well. I love it. So let's talk about the content creation. It sounds like lots of different interests and demographic targets that you could hit for the exact same product. So how do you guys create or, you know, you mentioned almost collect content to change up the content based on the targeting that you're doing? Yeah, what we're super fortunate about is is we have a great network and one of our co-founders, Teddy, he is one of the most talented people we've ever seen with a video camera in his hands. And we've built out a, a small team of media ambassadors who will help us execute content if and when it's needed. And then what's really unique about our team of five or six people is that all of us are extremely different. We, we're each customers of our product, but in much different ways. Like we do very different activities on the weekend and we all have different personalities. So we're actually able to bring a piece of each team member to the forefront when developing content and basically say, Hey, Austin, whatever you're going to go do this weekend, let's film what you're doing this weekend with the casemate with our product and collect content around that, which is going to be very different from what Kyle is doing that weekend. So let's go get content for what Kyle is doing that weekend. And then we all come together and we're going to have five different opportunities to pinpoint five different audiences of people uh, and, and be able to get them to picture themselves in that exact environment. I got it. So I think that's important where you're constantly creating content. I think the approach for a long time was that a lot of people just create an ad once and then tweak the, the targeting or maybe tweak the copy. But you are constantly creating different video and different images, the actual creative itself, and putting into these ads. So not just tweaking, again, the, the copy or tweaking the targeting. You're tweaking the actual creative, the video, the images that you're putting into these ads. You have to, and you, and you have to, you have to test everything, right? I think that's the most important thing that we've learned from the e-commerce side of the business over the last 12 months is that certain things that you think are going to work really well are going to fail right in front of your face. And certain things that you thought were going to fail end up being the most traffic driving and conversion high piece of content that you really didn't even picture. So you need to be open to testing and set a budget aside to just go ahead and throw what, 50 bucks, 100 bucks at these different types of ads, analyze the return. And then if it worked for you, then you need, maybe need to go back and get more high quality content around that same subject and then double down on that, triple down on that and just always be monitoring and testing. Mm -hmm. Got it. So let's talk tactically again. What is the testing process like for you guys? Let's say you identify that there's an interest target or demographic, like how large an audience do you usually try to break down into these tests? Hey, Real quick, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now, let's get back to the interview. Uh, yeah, so we try and, you know, break it down relatively small. Um, you know, we try to keep it within the 100,000, you know, to 200,000 range in terms of uh, people that we're able to get access to. Ultimately, we're not spending enough money to get access to all of them. Then we try and load up the creatives that we're showing as well as, you know, pick two or three different messages to test, you know, across those creatives and then test testing different messages with different creatives and uh, different messages with the same creatives. Uh, you know, just figuring out what's going to work and what pairings are most effective. I think that's, you know, what we really try to hone in on just to get the right people to the site at the right time. I got it. So when you talk about loading up on the creatives and ads, we already talked about how it's important to create new creatives constantly for these tests. So how many creatives are we talking about? How many creatives do you do you, do you want to, to work with? Yeah. So, um, you know, for an audience, I would say that we start with around, you know, five to six creatives. And then from there we try and, you know, hone it down to one or two that we let run for as long as they're performing. And then we restart. So, uh, you know, ultimately we try to get them up to at least a three to one ROAS, um, return on ad spend. And then from there, you know, we filter them into a higher category of, you know, these are the ones that are performing. We let those run, try to optimize those. We, uh, try to optimize it, a you know, try to mess around with them less, just, you know, minute tweaks. 
and then, you know, ultimately we run those until um, they're no longer relevant and then we repeat. Okay, that makes sense. So that's the name of the game, right? Just constantly testing things out. So you're talking about five, six creatives, two different messages. So almost like 20 different ads for each one of these tests. Essentially, yep. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. Now, what is your approach when you want to scale up? Let's say you find like a particular ad where it combines the creative and the messaging in a way where you're just killing it. You're getting at least three times return on ad spend you're look, that you're looking for. What's your process to, to let's just say, let's blow this up, let's scale this up? Uh, it, it really depends on the, uh, you know, the type of ad. So with prospecting, you know, you can throw more money behind it and get more people to the site. But then from that, you know, you really have to focus on your retargeting. Um, so, you know, pairing those two together um, and figuring out what's working on both the prospecting and retargeting side, that's extremely important. Um, so ultimately, you know, we have a similar testing structure for retargeting, but um, in terms of uh, targeting for those ads, we uh, try and do it, you know, as relevant as possible to the user. So we uh, created custom audiences based on, you know, what their, um, what their actions are on the site. So if they go to a specific product page or a media page or something of that nature, we target them with ads that show either that product or, you know, something that that's in line with that media page being, you know, a branded video, lifestyle content, so on and so forth. Um, so really, you know, having a good system on both the prospecting and retargeting side, that will allow you to get up to that point to where, hey, like, I'm able to throw more money to this, get more people to the site and then convert on the back end rather than just throwing money behind an ad and, um, you know, seeing that money go to waste once you yeah. reach a certain point. Yeah, Felix, what, what we've learned is that it's a constant balance between driving traffic and then converting customers on the site. And retargeting falls in the middle there but there will be times where we can drive an absolute crazy amount of traffic to the site but it's not going to convert at what we're um what our standards are and then there will be times when the site's converting really well but our ads were not generating the traffic that we really were hoping or wanted to so you know with us being such a small team and we have five full-time guys we have three different distribution channels of the business. So e-commerce is just one piece of the puzzle. It's really important for us to balance our resources and our budgets so that we optimize, you know, the, the best return on the traffic and the conversion. And that's something that we've really been focusing on the last couple of weeks. Right. Makes sense. Okay. So the, I think the, tar the retargeting part makes sense where you are showing them the product that they just looked at. What's the messaging there? Like, how do you change up the way you talk about the product once they are actually already, already familiar with it? Once they've already come to your site, probably browse around to see a, different, a few different products, maybe read your About Us page. How do you change how you talk to them once they're already aware of you and your products? You know, it's something that's really cool that we just learned was that uh, there's a lot of success in the retargeting space when you have a photo of a customer submitted product that they were using out in the market. So if you retarget someone with a photo of just a customer and maybe their comment on the picture and they're out on the boat using it and it's it's a high quality image, but maybe it's not professionally taken like some of the content that we'll post on our feed, it can actually have a really good retargeting opportunity. 100%. Ultimately, from a retargeting side, we want to do as little of the talking as possible and we want to let either our customers or a press outlet, you know, use what they say about us to kind of make that sell because you know you don't want to get too salesy at that point because ultimately you know digital is an interesting space where you're constantly disrupting people doing you know where they're not expected to buy or not necessarily looking to buy got it so i think at this point once they've already seen your product and you're retargeting them what you'd like to go after then is the social proof. Like, let's get the unbiased reviews from your customers or some media outlets. So I want to talk about the media pages that you mentioned you retarget off of. So what are these media pages that you're driving customers to begin with? Um, so we're not necessarily driving people to our media page. Uh, we get a lot of traffic to our media page. Um, we try to create, you know, good long form content that can be used in other forms. Um, 
both from a branding standpoint and a marketing standpoint, kind of using that as a catch-all. Um, so, you know, like we said, we have uh, Teddy, who's just, you know, a wizard with a camera, and uh, he's really passionate about, you know, creating movies, telling stories. So we try and pair those two together to get a balance of, you know, hey, you know, here's a little bit of branded content with marketing content and use those together to kind of um, ultimately help sell our product, but also build our brand. Yeah, I feel like something really interesting that we've been doing and has been working for us is when Kyle just mentioned the long form content. I'll dive into that real quick. We started a reality TV series called The Fun Factory, the warehouse that we just moved into. We were previously in my partner's parents' basement. We were able to scrap together a couple hundred bucks a month to afford a, a very large warehouse out in the middle of nowhere. But we have this 15 to 20 minute monthly reality TV series on YouTube called The Fun Factory, which is really just documenting the team's monthly lives and day-to-day lives. And whenever we do a fun event or go somewhere, however, we're using the product and really just doing kind of crazy, funny, stupid stuff. But what's unique about that is if you can capture that someone's attention for that full 15 minutes, that's amazing. But what we're able to do is grab 15, 30, 60 second snippets from within that long form content and run ads specifically on those smaller portions. We're able to grab a swipe up story, a 15 second swipe up story or a 30 second Instagram recap and just find a way to distribute one piece of content in 10 or 20 different ways has been a really effective use of time. I like the strategy where you're now spending 20 minutes to create this long-form content that you're cutting up into these micro-content pieces. And now that you're pushing these out into Instagram stories and driving ads to them, where's the next step that you want you want your viewer to take once they've seen this micro-content? Is it to go back and look at a product or go back and look at the 20-minute long-form content? Ultimately, we want to get them to the site and you know get them to sign up for our mailing list. Um, you know, we utilize email as you know it's one of our it drives about you know 20 percent of our revenue on site so ultimately if we can get them to go from social media to our site and we capture their email that's you know that's a win for us it's not necessarily getting them to purchase right off the bat it's you know goal number one is to get their email Okay, so you create this long-form content and you chop it up into micro-content, which then you're, you're trying to drive them to sign up for your email list from there. And that's where more of the kind of more direct response marketing happens where you're trying to get the sale? Exactly. Yeah. Highest conversions is definitely on the email. Got it. So you, what are you saying in the micro-content to get them onto the email list? Like, What is the hand-holding or the process that gets them from watching a 15-second or a 30-second clip of this long-form content into wanting to sign up for the email list? There isn't necessarily a call to action within the video itself, but we will put it in the caption sometimes. And then if we're just doing unique and funny and and different stuff, and maybe someone had watched the full 20-minute video, and then a day later when they see that 15-minute snippet or 15-second snippet, it brings them back to that long video. And then we always make our website accessible. No matter what form of content it's distributed in, the website has to be accessible to people. And when it's accessible and available, uh, it, it, it's a lot easier to get people to show up to your website. You never want to have someone having trouble searching for your site. You know, it, it needs to be readily available at, at all times on all pieces of content that you distribute. Okay, just to make sure I understand this, so the micro-content, there is no direct call to action, but there's some kind of reference to that, that that there's more to see, more content to see, that there's more, there's another 20 minutes that if they went to your site, they could watch. And ideally, once they watch the entire thing or a good portion of the 20-minute long-form content, they might be like, wow, these guys are super interesting. I want to follow along with them more and see what they're doing. Maybe I'm not a customer yet, but I like where they're going with this content. Let me sign up for their email list and continue to watch. Exactly. And an important thing to note is that those long-form contents and, and a lot of our content is hosted on our website. So we want people to go there and then that's linked to YouTube. So if we can get people to the site to watch the different videos and the different documentaries, different people that we partner with, you know, the longer you can keep on the site, the more likely they are to kind of shop around and maybe have an idea in the future of where they could use the product. 
Right. Okay. So this sounds like definitely a worthwhile investment of your time again to create this 20 minute, 20 minute video. Uh, but I think it still might seem super daunting to a lot of people out there. Like, what, what is the plan that's involved? Like, how, how many people do you need? What if someone's a one person team? Like, can they follow along with your strategy to create this long form content that could then be distributed as micro content to eventually get people to sign up for their email list? Uh, yeah. I mean, ultimately, when we started, we didn't necessarily have the plan of, hey, we're going to build out this extremely, you know, in-depth production. Um, we just started by documenting what we were doing. Um, when we started out, it was, you know, Teddy was good with the camera, but now he's great with it. But he wasn't, you know, he wasn't anywhere near the level he's at now. Um, so just by documenting, you know, there's so many resources to putting videos together just kind of showing the process of you know hey this is what we're doing this is kind of what our our journey looks like um you know just getting that message across of hey this is us this is what we do kind of selling them on the brand first mm -hmm. um i think that's really important you don't necessarily it doesn't need to be you know super well thought out super you know high quality just as long as you're documenting what you're actually doing yeah if you're a one-man show it, it's totally possible i mean relationship selling is is never going to die and people buy the why they don't always buy the what so if you can convey that personal touch that genuine sincere uh product and connection uh why you created it what your story is if you can put that into video form or photo form, whatever it takes, but then find ways to distribute that and get it in front of your customer's eyes. People are going to remember the story. When they purchase your product, they'll be sharing that story that they remember seeing about your product whenever they're out using it. So we're huge on making sure we're documenting all of the large events that we go to, anything unique that we're doing from a day-to-day -day basis, and just try to be as genuine with the content as possible. You can record it on an iPhone for all that matters. You know, It, it doesn't have to be, like Kyle said, the full-fledged production. I mean, just do some unique and different stuff and be comfortable talking in front of the camera. And if you're not, you know, do a little bit of practice, but it'll go a long way once your customer base can make a connection between what you're selling and why you're selling it. And ultimately it doesn't even need to be, you know, video content. Yeah. Ultimately, like if you, if you're documenting what you're doing, you're taking pictures, you can repurpose that into a blog or, you yep. know, just call it a photo story, which is something that we want to get more into because, you know, That'll also fuel, you know, our site media and our marketing media and so on and so forth. So it's really just, you know, using if, you know, if you are your core customer, use your product and document it. So you don't have to make it into, you know, a kind of a polished movie. You're talking about just like documenting your journey, almost like if it's too professional, it appears too distant from your customers. So the key is to be genuine and authentic. Do you recommend sharing like the problems and issues that you're facing as a company? Like how transparent do you recommend people get with their documentation of their journey? I mean, ultimately, it's up to them. I think, yeah, case you know, by case. We, we try and be as authentic as possible. We try to add a little bit of humor in it into it. We all think we're funny guys. Um, so, you know, it really comes down to the person. Um, you know, yeah, I think it's really on a case-by-case -case base, like Austin said. Yeah, the big thing I, that I think with the, you know, a video or any content is, is showcasing the problem that your product is solving, right? That's been our most successful thing is, hey, when we, when we went up on, on Shark Tank, you know, I was carrying a big bulky Yeti cooler and my partner was carrying a styrofoam cooler and we were showing the negatives of those two products and how our product was the solution. So just, you know, keep that in mind whenever you're creating content or depicting a story on social is problem solution oriented. Got it. Okay, cool. I want to talk a little bit about the recommendations you gave us about the applications you use. The first one here is Optin Monster, which you use, in, use for A-B testing, email signups for, sign for the messaging, and then the landing pages. So tell us about this. How do you exactly use Optin Monster on a day-to-day -day basis? Uh, yeah, so um, one thing we do is, you know, we, or we create different uh, lead gen forms based on pages. So you know, if someone's on a product page and um, Optin Monster has the beautiful, uh, beautiful ability to uh, do exit intent pop-ups and they're about to exit, throw them some type of value, whether it be here's a gift or a code for a gift card on your next purchase, an add-on like a we do free koozies or as we like to call them roozies, um, 
or bottle openers and just kind of capture that purchase when you have their attention. And then also things like media, um, the media page example, we, uh, you know, do a more targeted lead gen form for that. And from that, we're able to segment our list based on, um, you know, what's what form they're signing up for, where they're signing up for, so on and so forth. Got it. And then you also mentioned you use Shogun page builder for landing pages. How do you use that? Yes. Uh, so yeah, so Shark Tank was a great example. Um, for our prospecting apps, we try and drive people to a more, more uh, education-based page. Um, you know, we've found that, you know, educating people on this product is more difficult than we thought. Um, people think it's cooler. People think it's, like Austin said, just an insulated bag. Kind of getting across that messaging of, hey, you have to slide the case in. You have to keep all layers on it. Um, so whether it be, you know, event specific or uh, goal specific, you know, we kind of try and tailor our landing pages according to what the end goal is. It makes sense. Awesome. So buykanga.com is the website. B-U-Y-K-A-N-G-A.com is the website. And I'll leave you this last question. What do you guys think that has been the biggest lesson you learned so far this year that you'll certainly want to take advantage of this lesson in the upcoming year? Yeah, I think for, for me personally, the, the biggest thing that I've learned has been uh, to be open-minded when you're engaging new consumers, when you maybe have one idea in your mind of who you think your customer is, uh, that might not necessarily be the case. After you do the rounds of testing, after you get the feedback, and after you analyze what people have said, you need to be open-minded to be able to kind of adapt and change who that core customer may be. Because coming out of the gates, if we thought that this was a 21-year-old college student product just for tailgating, but now we're able to sell to 30, 40-year-old people who are going to gift it away uh, as part of a holiday gift for this upcoming season, who are going to take it on the boat, the golf course, take it to the beach. And just, you know, that wasn't necessarily what we had in mind for the product when it was developed, but now we're kind of double downing that because we all were open-minded and we were willing to adapt to our surroundings and be willing to test the different things that are out there. And uh, you know, it's really a cool thing once once you start to find some success on the e-commerce side of the business. And uh, man, it's just been a rewarding uh, experience for us so far. But I just tell everyone out there to be open-minded, try as many different things as you can. When you find the things that work, double down on them, but then don't stop trying new things. Even when things are working, keep testing and trying other things uh, because you really never know what's going to be the most effective for your business. So that that'd be my piece of advice. Yeah, my, mine was a little different. Uh, for me, I was just going to say um, more of a personal thing, uh, you know, starting this, you know, this being all of our first, you know, entrepreneurial venture. Um, I really have learned the value of balancing work and life. Um, entrepreneurship is, you know, a really all encompassing lifestyle and it can be really lonely. So kind of finding that time to set aside, you know, hey, I'm going to step away for, you know, couple hours, go do this. And, you know, really finding that balance is extremely important and ultimately will make you happier. And that's what I've learned um, just from my experience and my journey. Awesome. I appreciate it. So again, buykanga.com is a website. Thank you so much for your time, Austin and Kyle. Thank yeah. you, Felix. We really appreciate it, man. And then check us out on Instagram too. It's at Kanga Coolers. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify.